Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, will you uh, open it to Matthew chapter 3? Matthew chapter 3, we'll also have the passages of Scripture up on the screen. Um, we're still in our series, or we're kind of still just kind of kicking off our series called Kingdom Culture, where we're working through the book of Matthew. And uh, last week, amongst a, n- a number of other things, we said that if you are not a Christian or you're not sure where you stand with God, this is a great series for you to stick around and maybe come to Ambassador a few weeks in a row, because as we read through the first book of the New Testament, we're really kind of discovering who Jesus is week by week as we just read verse by verse through this book. Um, my encouragement, if you are a Christian and maybe Ambassador Church is your family, church family, and you've been around for a bit, for you to maybe for this series, lay aside some of your presuppositions, some of your conceptions about who Jesus is and how to grow in your faith, and kind of like put those to the side just for a second and try to come to this information, come to the Gospel of Matthew with freshness, with a new sense of discovery about who God is. Sometimes it's the old simple truths that you, you know you already know it, but you don't really know it. And my hope and my prayer for our series, especially with Christians, is that you come a passage hits you just square in the chest, or some truth about who God is becomes real to you in a new way, and that you'd be blessed by this uh, series. In my mind, each passage of Matthew paints like one brushstroke that is the image of who Jesus is and who his kingdom is, or who Jesus is as king. And sometimes, if you are a painter, you might know that it helps to back up from the painting once in a while just to see kind of where you stand. You get into the weeds on it. You get into the detail of it, and you know exactly how to carve a brush and to create a little tree. Or if you've seen those old Bob Ross videos from public television, you know, where you go, happy little trees. But then all those trees need a little bit of shading and that sort of thing. And sometimes it takes a moment to step back from it and go, how do those trees look from 10 feet away? And the same thing is true, I think, with our faith or even with Scripture, that let's like dive in, tear through words, tear through passages of Scripture, and then maybe midweek do some praying, do some thinking, all right, where do I stand with this truth in my life, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not sure where you stand with God in the first place. So that's my hope and my prayer for us. I trust that um, if you are a Christian, you'll be able to zoom in on the detail and see the beauty of it. And I trust that if you're not a Christian, that as we walk through the series, the face of Jesus and the truth of God will come into clearer and clearer picture as we go through the series. So, Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1, let's read it. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry." He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is at hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you, and, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. The Gospels are these historic accounts of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I say that because sometimes um, you would, if you were like me when I became a Christian, you might read through the Gospels and wonder why these stories keep repeating. Uh, Somebody in my high school when I became a Christian gave me like a books on tape for the Bible. Maybe they knew I didn't really like to read much. And so they gave me books on tape of the Bible and I popped the first tape and I thought, okay, I'm willing to like, see what this Jesus thing is about. And I was new to church, and I was frustrated that, uh, I I actually was frustrated because I thought the tapes were broken because the stories kept repeating themselves over and over again. Uh, That was a long way to say this kind of fact, that different gospel accounts record different aspects of Jesus's life. Some, a few of them have his birth, but one of them doesn't, and, uh, and some of them have his first miracle being turning water into wine, which is in the Gospel of John, but all four of the Gospels record this event, and therefore, all, obviously, all four Gospel writers see this event as an important uh, account of the life of Jesus, and so we're meant to dig into it and say, okay, what's the significance of this event? Jesus's baptism. He... Uh, he was in, John the Baptist was in, the wilderness of Judea, which um, if you were a first century Old Testament reader, you would know that there were a few other things in the book of Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, where that desert was a place of new beginnings. And here Jesus arrives on the, as the first scene of his arrival of his earthly ministry as adult, non-infant from the birth narrative earlier in Matthew, Jesus. And John prepares a way for the Lord. He's preaching repentance. People are coming from all of these surrounding areas to hear John prepare the way for the king. And then, you can imagine, through the bushes, after this big speech about repentance, and you should produce fruit in keeping repentance, keeping uh, in line with repentance, and then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up to start his earthly ministry. We're meant to pay attention to this passage and ask the question, okay, If the king is here, then what has he come to do? What is his kingdom like? And how do I be a part of it? So in a sense, we see the entrance into the kingdom from the king, which Matthew portrays Jesus as a king. And we're meant to ask the question, okay, if he's king and he's bringing a coming kingdom, how do we become a part of that kingdom? And we're going to see four different things in the passage, four different things about Jesus's kingdom. One, why it's unique. Two, who it's for. Three, how to enter that kingdom. And then fourthly, what role you play. Why it's unique, who it's for, how to enter, and what role you play. So if you look in the beginning of the passage, you'll see that John is announcing a coming kingdom. He says, this kingdom is already at hand, which I find very interesting because I'm not sure in the passage if John knew that Jesus was about to roll out 
from down some sort of path, some, through some bushes or however Jesus arrived at the Jordan River. I'm not sure if John knew that that was happening, but whatever it is, he's saying the kingdom has come near to you. And then immediately, or maybe after some time of baptizing people, maybe he had been preaching that kind of message for some time, wondering what God was going to do, and then John came, I mean, Jesus came to the Jordan River. And in a very literal sense, the kingdom of God came near because the king had arrived. Jesus' kingdom is a very unique kind of kingdom because we already read in Matthew 1 this weird genealogy where these 'er ne'er-do-wells and and sinners were involved in the genealogy of Jesus, and yet he's the Messiah, and yet he's the son of David, and he's king, and now he shows up to this very interesting guy living in the wilderness— eating locusts and honey. I mean, if that was the, if that was like the megachurch pastor outfit, you know, it would be a weird state of affairs for the church in Orange County. This guy's preaching repentance, you know, repent from the, where's that honey again? He's got, he's obviously has this weird eccentric kind of ministry out in the river, and then Jesus arrives to announce his kingdom through that kind of prophet. And you'll look in verse 1, it says that John was busy baptizing and preaching. You look in verse 2, his message was a very simple sermon, uh, not a three-point sermon, just a one-point sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. If you look in verse 5, we see that people from all around were coming to hear this message. In the end, the kingdom of God is unique and different than world religions of the first century and world religions of our day today, or even different philosophies of how to live your life, because at the root of this kingdom and this coming king is a message. It's a reality. It's a truth. And if you believe it, your life will change. Notice that's very different than a lot of other world religions or philosophies about how to live your life where uh, in the end some sort of prophet or some person who maybe claims to be God says, you don't, don't follow me, don't worship me, but follow my dharma, follow my instruction, follow my teaching. And if you can save yourself and if you can follow these religious principles and act within them, then maybe you will earn God's approval or find some level of enlightenment All of the world religions of our day have something in common in that they are not primarily about news. They are primarily about rules for how to live your life or how to gain God's acceptance. But John is saying uh, not, here's some advice. He's saying there is a thing that is coming, a person that is coming, and you should turn to him. So really, we just see the difference between advice and news. And you very well know advice is counsel uh, of something that you have to do. But news is a report of something that has already been done. If you and your town were, because some of us live in different towns around Orange County, if your town or your neighborhood was being invaded by some foreign army, you would need military advice. You would need some sort of military strategy, right? You would need someone to show up to the Brea Civic Center and say, all right, the tanks go here, The marksmen go here, the ground troops go here, and the rest of us run and hide over here. That's advice. It's strategy to say, do this, make these decisions, place these things here. But in an alternate scenario, imagine yourself being a king and sending your military out to fight a battle. 
if, if you're still at home, but the military is in some other foreign land fighting a battle, the thing that you would receive from that military would not be advice. It would be good news or bad news. Meaning, uh, if the military action was going off on some other place and there was nothing that you could do, then the only thing that you would hear back from that military is either we won, good news, or we lost, bad news, and that foreign military is about to encroach up over the hill into your home. And that's exactly the metaphor that the first century hearers would have understood when, when Christians said that at the root of our faith is an evangelion, which is a, a Greek word for gospel, and an announcement of good news. That is the concept. And of course, there were other kings in the day that had their own gospel about their own military strategy and what nations they took over. Caesar would have had his own gospel and his own book that he wrote about his own life and the accounts of his life and what he did for the Roman military. But then all of a sudden, this other king, almost kind of a countercultural, subversive king, shows up to say, I have my own gospel. But what it's not is good advice. At the heart of the Christian life is an announcement of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, not primarily about what you must do to save yourself. And you know what? If the message of Christianity or when Christianity gets boiled down to a bunch of life advice, it's crushing. You'll walk away from a sermon, and I've heard them before because I've been a Christian for about 15 or 18 years now, that uh, even at church, you can hear someone say, like, here's some passages about Scripture, but then you kind of get the gist. Maybe sometimes you show up to church where it's just about life advice or just about behavior modification, and it's just a lot of stuff about here's how to fix your marriage or here's how you have it in your own control to be able to, like, act better and feed more people who are poor. And even Christianity, when it's manipulated like that, sometimes you feel like you sang upbeat songs at church, but you still feel like you have a weight on your shoulder. But when the gospel is about an announcement of something that has been done on your behalf. When you show up to church and we read scripture together, or even when you crack your Bible open at home, when you go, that is who my God is, and I see what he has done on my behalf, and because of that, it changes my identity, it changes the, the way I view money, it changes the way I view sex, it changes the way I view my job and my parenting. When, when you read the Bible, or when we get together and worship because of a God who has done something on our behalf through Jesus on the cross, then we can walk out of here on Sunday mornings with a lightness to our being because it's not just about advice on how you can control your own destiny and save yourself, but it's primarily about what God has done on your behalf. All this kind of came to a reality in my mind because I just realized how much advice I get in a normal week. Do you feel that way sometimes? You go, there's a lot of advice that just kind of gets put on you. I was at like Home Goods or was it TJ Maxx or was it Ross or one of those other types of stores? And in the back of those stores, there's always like one aisle of like discounted, discount clearance home goods that are like some benches and some ottomans and some other things for your house. But there's always like an entire row these days of things that hang on your wall that tell you what to do with your life. Like live. And then under it's in like a different font, laugh. 
I'm like, okay, cool. I don't feel like I'm doing either of those. But and then another one, it's like, but it's like um, something painted it and then sanded it a little bit and then wrote love, you know. And then under it is like drink wine, and it's like, oh, cute, you know. There's like it's it was a switcheroo, okay. And then next to it is like follow your bliss, and then next to and it's just like an entire aisle of like advice for your life. And I look at it and I go, okay, all right. Uh, those are all well-intentioned uh, commands for me to live my life, but it is just too much. I would walk away if I tried to do any of those things, like I had a thousand-pound weight on my shoulder, and um, that was a silly way to just explain the fact that you feel that weight, even if you've been a Christian for some time, but maybe there's some shame associated with it, maybe there's some disappointment because it's a little bit about pleasing your parents or a little bit about pleasing your community or a little bit about keeping up appearances and avoiding the process of looking like you're a messed up person, and it just feels weighty, and yet John's message is not about advice. It's about a king that's coming and an event that happened And as we read through this book, we'll see a Savior who died and accomplished victory on your behalf. And now we live differently because of it. So his kingdom is unique because it's about gospel, not just about life advice. Secondly, who it's for. Who is the kingdom of God for? Who is going to be included in uh, Jesus' kingdom? Take a look in verse 6. It says that these people came to John confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw um, the Pharisees, he started to confront them. And you'll see this whole section about what he said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he confronts them. He says, you're a brood of vipers. And look in verse 8. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And they were baptized and they confessed in repentance, or at least the other people did. And then if you fast forward to verse 11, he's saying, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We find out something about Jesus' kingdom here because we find out that it is for a certain type of people. And a other certain type of people will not be involved and welcomed into Jesus' kingdom. And I think already when we say that and we read about Jesus Um, bringing a kingdom that is in a sense exclusionary, we get to one of the most prominent problems that people have with Christianity in our day today. That our culture, and I'm kind of happy about most of it, is very into inclusion, very into every type of person being included into a community, into being accepted for who they are, and yet we find John doing this thing that religious people get pegged for all the time, which is talking about fire and talking about burning, and he's talking about the Pharisees, and he says, you guys don't even understand. The axe is already at the root. You think that God is like potentially ready to wind up, but that you can impress him, and maybe he'll change his mind and not take an axe to that root, and he's saying, dude, you guys are dead meat. That axe has already cut the root. You're just not dry and dead and fallen over yet. He's confronting the religious leaders of the day saying, you don't understand, your whole foundation has already crumbled because the king is coming. Like you are a divisive kingdom, like you are from the empire, but like you don't understand, we got some Jedi, you know what I mean? Like we have our own king and he's going to come and disrupt this little thing that you're trying to create. The axe is already at the root. But religious people, I think, for a long time, or at least, I can't speak for religious people, but I can speak to some extent for some Christians, or at least a few of the Christians in this room, and say that we get uh, maybe a reputation for people that are exclusionary. The thing that I notice, though, 
is that not only are Christians known for that, but we are all exclusionary to some extent. Now, let me make this point. Um, everyone has an idea about the way the world should work. And if you think, you know what, I don't have a, an idea about the way the world should work. I just think everyone should be open-minded. Aha, got you, because that is a thing that you think would be better if everyone agreed with that particular opinion. And I know I go off on this sometimes, but I want to say it differently. Um, see if you agree with me on this. Everyone has some idea about who's in and who's out in the world. Like the blue states. Uh, I'm a blue state guy because I've always lived in California. And you'll notice sometimes blue state people, like, I mean, I mean politically or what have you, but also culturally, when people in California start mimicking someone who's silly and closed-minded, they always use a southern accent. You ever notice that? And you got like a friend who's southern, they're like, wait a doggone minute, you know, whatever. Like you go, hold on a second. Why? When you say, uh, oh, some people are just ignorant, you go, whoa, that's like an Alabama accent. That's not fair. And, but then you hear some people from the red states, right? People from the blue states say uh, the, blue, the red state people are out. And then some of the red state people, uh, there was a poll that even came out this week that I saw online that polled certain people about what state in the union they hate the most. You want to, I'll give you one guess who won the most hated state in the union, California. Of course, so the, the red states hate the blue states, the blue states hate the red states, or at least feel like you guys should come over to live life like us. And then religious people look at um, the Super Bowl halftime show and they go, wow, dare they, you know, those things should not be shaken like that on live TV, you know, or, and so there's the religious people who, who kind of say people should be more strict about these certain things, sexual ethics or, or whatever, and then people who are irreligious might look towards the religious people and say, why are we the ones who are so focused about social justice or so whatever, and, and so we all have these like stereotypes and all these things, but everyone has some idea about who's in and who's out. The question we should ask is not who's exclusionary, but if we're all kind of like, hey, even the open-minded people say the closed-minded people should be out because the way to live is to be open-minded, everyone's exclusionary. The question we should really be asking is what kind of exclusive beliefs, since everyone takes a stance on something, most lead us to love and humility and justice and mercy to all kinds of people? If everyone's exclusive, what kinds of exclusive beliefs cause us to say, I can forgive you, or I don't blame your poverty just on your moral decisions, but there are systemic things here that create this that I want to be a part of. Or sometimes people uh, disagree with you about their sexual ethics, but they uh, are still lovable and acceptable with, within their mess, within their changing and diverse opinions about things. What kind of exclusive beliefs cause us to love? Well, in Jesus' kingdom, we see a very interesting thing about who's included and who's excluded in this passage. Because John rightfully knows that the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been known for, you might say, spiritual manipulation mixed with a lot of race, racism and a lot of cultural superiority, as well as a, a lot of classism with the way they treat other people and some religious manipulation and the manipulations of Scripture. And all of a sudden you get those together and John is saying, I know you guys. We've already talked before. This is obviously not the first time John talked to the Pharisees. It's not like they just showed up on the scene and he was like, vipers, get out of here. He's got a history with these people. And he says, you should produce fruit, not just in your religious deeds, but in keeping with what you need to be doing, which is repenting. 
and turning to God. And so in God's kingdom, who's in and who's out? Well, in the end, I guess you could say that if all these random other people from around Judea are coming and getting baptizing and confessing their sin, secondly, and the Pharisees are out, then there's something about the humble that are in. Other people say, the blue states are out, the red states are out, the religious people are out, the moral people are out, people who agree with my sexual beliefs uh, are out. And then Jesus is basically saying, it's the humble who are in, who are willing to say, I'm deeply flawed, and I need a king. I need a savior to save me. They're in. And it's the proud, and it's the people who have excuses about their attitude, and it's the people who believe that through their religious or cultural, or class elitism, they are out. Because in putting their hope in those things, they are saying, I don't need to be baptized. I don't need to be dunked in this weird ceremony where the water gets up your nose and stuff, and then you come out and you're, you're checking yourself. It's going like, I don't need my, my whole head whipped back and thrown into the water and came up as some ceremony just to symbolize how deeply flawed and sinful I am and how much I need to be washed and then how much I need to live to a new life. I don't need all that business. I just need a tune-up. I just need a little bit of religion to help me in my life. I just need a little bit of God's power to give me a little more peace to go on my way to the success that I was already chasing in my life. It's the people who say, I just need a little bit of a boost from God. I don't need to die. I don't need to race to a new life. Those people are the ones who Jesus is saying, listen, you get me or you don't get me. You can't, I don't serve your agenda. And so the humble are in, the repentant are in, the people who are willing to say, I'm flawed and I need a savior. And it's the religious folks who are using their religion to support themselves who are out. In uh, Indiana Jones, uh, of the last, in the last crusade, um, there's a moment where uh, Indy remembers that the penitent man will pass, and he's making his way through this little uh, crypt all the way to find the Holy Grail. And he says, the penitent man is humble before God. The penitent man is humble before God. The penitent man will pass. And do you remember that he sees some dead people in front of them who had obviously been chopped by some saw or whatever. And he goes, oh, interesting. I don't want to die like them. And so he, he realizes right in the nick of time that the penitent man is humble before God. And he drops to his knees. And then a saw buzzes right over his head. And then uh, that would have cut him right through the stomach. And then he does some sort of ninja roll where I was like, I don't think we ninja roll before God, but at least the metaphor works out. The penitent man is humble before God. He remembers it. He finally gets it. He drops to a knee and it saves him. And to some extent, stupid example, but it's true with us and the Lord. That there is a moment where your excuses float away. And some of you who are Christians might have had this experience. There's a moment where you say, I'm done trying to save myself by impressing God. I'm done with my good deeds trying to, in fact, kind of keep me away from being desperate for Jesus because as long as I'm doing good and I think God owes me something, then I have some control over my life. And some of you have that experience where you go, the moment I became a Christian is when I stopped trying and started just being loved by Jesus. I stopped trying to earn it, stopped trying to control it, but just let up control to a God who loves me and wants me in his life. And so the penitent person is humble before God. And for some of us who are prideful, or maybe you're like the straight-A student, maybe you're like an achieving person, maybe you look at other folks and you go, I am a little bit better than them, and more people need to be like me. And you, you catch yourself saying that out loud, and, and it can cause us to, my prayer is that it causes us to drop to a knee and say, God, I'm not everything that I think I am, and I need you. So, 
The kingdom is for people who drop to a knee, confess, and repent. And then thirdly, how to enter. You have to, the, the only way to enter into the kingdom of God is by dying. Take a look in verse 6. Baptism. Baptizo. Plunging. Immersing. Being dropped into the water and being pulled out. John says in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes Jesus, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What does the Holy Spirit and fire mean? Especially when John is referring to fire as judgment or as, as the axe is at the root and you guys are a bunch of branches that are dead and you're going to be burned. In the end, the Holy Spirit and fire are here kind of synonyms. That's kind of the same term. He's saying Jesus is going to come and the Holy Spirit will anoint you in a sense will come upon you as a Christian. He, Jesus says the same thing in Acts chapter 1-8. He's talking to a bunch of scared people after the resurrection. He's about to ascend into heaven, and he says, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see that the Holy Spirit descends on the church like tongues of fire when, they, when the gospel goes into all nationalities and then goes out from all those nationalities to the ends of the earth. That's what... John means by Holy Spirit and fire. You know, it raises a big question in my mind. Um, why did Jesus feel the need to get baptized? Like, John has been very clear. Baptism is for repentance. Baptism is for confession of sin. And we already know that from Matthew's account of Jesus' life, from John's account of Jesus' life, from Mark... Uh, you know, all the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, we know something about Jesus is that he was sinless, and in his sinless nature, he was a sacrifice for sin. So then why did Jesus need to get baptized? Well, John had the same problem too, right? If you look in verse 14, Jesus said, uh, he came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John in verse 14, but John tried to deter him. First of all, don't ever give Jesus advice. He already knows what he's doing, right? Everyone else trying to give Jesus advice. Get behind me, Satan, and all this other stuff. So John is like, hold up, hold up, hold up. You should be baptizing me. I recognize who you are. You're not sinful. Why would you get baptized? And then John, I'm sorry, then Jesus says, let it be so now, which is a phrase in the day to say, let it be so. It is proper for us to do this. It's a common phrase. And he says, it's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John said, oh, okay, that makes sense. And then he consented. So why did Jesus get baptized? Some would speculate that he, that this is the moment that Jesus became divine, that like the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. And maybe this was the moment where he became the son of God, where he was this normal guy before. And then this is the moment. But the only problem with that is that every gospel records Jesus, not just uh, becoming the Son of God or becoming the Savior, but that He always was. You'll notice if you read the Gospel of John, it says that Jesus wasn't just born, He came, because the implication is He lived for eternity past. And so, Scripture doesn't say that this is the moment Jesus became the Savior, became the Son of God, so that's not the case. Some would speculate to say that maybe He's just affirming John's ministry and saying, maybe this is Jesus' way to say, John, I'm on your team. We're not, on, we're not creating separate uh, faiths here, and so we're on the same team. But then I suspect that if that were the case, John would have said, oh yeah, awesome, you should get baptized. But he fought him with that until he said, I need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Here we see Jesus identifying with sinners 
as the Messiah of the Old Testament and the king. Think about those different levels of status. Matthew 1, 1 says he's son of David, king. Um, Matthew 1, 1 says that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one from the Old Testament. All these prophecies about him, he's the one who's come to save the world. He's king. He's Messiah. And yet, in order to fulfill his life goals, he had to fulfill all righteousness. He had to identify with broken and sinful people. So Jesus shows up to the Jordan with a bunch of other people who are desperate for God's forgiveness and says, I'm with these people. These are my people. And in order to fulfill what I do, I need to be with them. I need to do the ceremonies that they're supposed to do as an example, as, a, as a, a, an act of solidarity and oneness with these sinners. And you probably hear this at church a lot, but still we, we have this belief that like, I know a lot of sinners have found their forgiveness in Jesus, but I'm too much of a sinner for God to love me. And if that's you here this morning, where you go, I've just done too much for God to forgive me, for God to have a plan for my life, for God to work and change me in, in my life. Notice how the water would have already been stirred up with mud. The people on the banks of the river would have been the ne'er-do-wells and screw-ups from all the towns in the surrounding area that had been rejected and were in that level of desperation. And Jesus is saying, in order for for me to fulfill righteousness, these are my people. And I'm going to go through the same scenario, the same ritual that they are in order to fulfill my role as King of Kings and as the Messiah. So how to enter? You have to go through the spiritual baptism that Jesus went through. He identifies with you, and then the good news of the gospel is that you trade identities with him. You take on the role of beloved child of God, sinless and forgiven, that only Jesus deserves. And when you become a Christian, he takes on, on the cross, the sin of your life and the the separated identity, the the broken identity that you have. And that exchange is a major part of the good news of the gospel. So if you want to enter into the kingdom of God and be aligned with him, you have to die. You have to go through the ceremony that Jesus went through. You have to say, I'm so broken. I'm so sinful. I'm so done trying to achieve my own success with God or in life that I'm, I'm going to be buried in baptism in a sense and then raised to a new life, a new identity where I identify with Jesus because he identified with me. Now, let me be clear. Uh, you are not saved through the act of baptism like we do in church. Um, you're not any more blessed by going through that ceremony. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of our salvation is that moment. And then the beauty of baptism in a literal sense, the ceremony that we go through as a church is that that act commemorates in front of the rest of the congregation and anyone else that gets invited on a a Sunday morning where we do baptism to celebrate this spiritual reality that I've died to an old life and I've raised up to a new life with an identity which is that of the Son of God. So how to enter? You have to die. 
Uh, I have an announcement to make, and it's that we are doing some baptisms coming up. I pray that maybe you're here this morning and you realize that uh, if you are a Christian, you've put your faith in Christ, or you're putting your faith in Christ just this morning for the first time, that your next step would be to get baptized. There's a lot of stuff that has been said about baptism, and I think uh, sometimes we fall into um, a few traps with baptism, like you think, oh, sure, I'm a Christian, and I know I'm forgiven of my sin, but I need to clean my life up a little bit before I go through a ceremony. And there's something about rituals and ceremonies that kind of put you to a decision about that. But I want to encourage you, if you are a Christian and your sins are forgiven and your life is a total mess, that's exactly who baptism is for. Baptism is for new Christians who are going, I am a mess. God help me. Or I'm a mess and I need a community of people who witness me getting baptized to help me grow in my faith. And so we're going to do some baptisms on Easter Sunday. Uh, the second trap that we fall into is because it's a ceremony, we think that there's so much sacredness in the act, in the water, in the temperature of the water, in the group of people who showed up to where I was dunked and that sort of thing, that we put a lot of stock into that sort of thing. I can assure you, like everything else we do at Ambassador Church, it'll be rough around the edges. We're probably going to have like a dunk tank. Well, not like the carnival dunk tank, but you know, like a horse trough or some other thing. There's no way it's going to feel overly sacred. And I like that. I like that about our church. I like the fact that our church rents a facility and that we're hanging out at the city hall because the, the, the ceremony of baptism is about the testimony of a life that's changed and a God who loves you and has forgiven you and a new identity that you have, not some sort of golden bathtub in which you get dunked that can sometimes, oftentimes, detract from the message of the good news of Christ. So I pray that you might be here and you might want to get baptized on Easter Sunday. If that's the case, then go talk to Pastor Daniel at the Connections Tent, and uh, he can just kind of get you signed up for a baptism class where you can find out more. I also pray that there are some people who will be invited to church and in the coming weeks will become Christians and also want to get baptized there. There's also a very real uh, scenario where no one would want to get baptized on Easter. And uh, okay, I'm okay with that too. But I can tell you, if, uh, because I know a few folks in, at Ambassador that uh, are timid people, don't love standing in front of other people, but are ready to get baptized. And I know that there are people who we're praying for that would know Jesus, come to faith, and would need to get baptized. If, if neither of those things happen, I'll tell you that we're going to spend some time on or after Easter praying that we become more public with our faith and we get more vocal about the gospel and that we get more active about making the life that we have in Jesus more public. Full disclosure. Let me close with this. Jesus' kingdom uh, has us playing a very particular role, and our role is like that of John the Baptist. I want to play a video for you. Uh, this is from one of my top favorite movies, Rocky II. And I'm just going to talk over it because you know it's in the back of your head. You can just start rolling it if that's okay, tech team. You know the music playing behind this already. Okay. And then... Uh, in Rocky 2, different than Rocky 1, Rocky starts running, but he's already famous because he's already won some great battle from Rocky 1. And when Rocky jumps out into his training montage, which is like the coolest part of Rocky, well, the part when he wins is number one, and number two to that is this type of scene. Can we just pause it for just a second, tech team? Look at that face. Okay, that is one face that's determined. Tech team, you can just pause it right there if that's okay. Dude, look at that guy. Look at that guy out running some kids. Okay, so um, I, I want to make a very simple point, and then I, uh, I want to 
we can even, <laughs> there we go, perfect. We think we're rocky. We live our lives reading the Bible, interpreting it as life advice for us because we think we're the main player in the story. We read the Bible and we think, what's the life lesson here that I can take away from this so I can be better, so I can be more cunning, so I can be more successful, more at peace? John the Baptist knows his role. He's saying, he is the king. Uh, if, and John, I'm fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy, but the only Old Testament prophecy I'm fulfilling as John the Baptist is that I make a way for the Savior to come. I make, I make a path straight. That's my one role, to make a path straight for the Savior to come. And John knows that he, at best, gets second place behind the true king. His whole goal is to glorify God and to point to his goodness, his role as king, his role as savior. And so in a, in a world where all of us are almost kind of convincing ourselves that we are rocky, we are not rocky. If you guys don't mind, play, press play again. I would like to show you who you are in this passage. You'll notice uh, Rocky is like really determined but I'm not sure how much stamina you have in your faith, but I get winded quick. And I think some of us do too. Like trials will come and we're out of gas. And in those moments, we don't make righteous choices. And some of us might think, okay, cool, I'm the kid in the red vest. <laughs> but uh, notice how quickly that guy gets, uh, gets dusted, right? And then so I love the fact that our church, in an effort to be a little bit more Christ-like, is like a bunch of little kids who are like, I see how cool that guy is. I see how wonderful Rocky is. And we're just going to start running after him. And we can't keep up. He's stronger than us. He makes it up the stairs first. But like, I just picture Ambassador Church being this wonderful multi-ethnic church that is running. I love Jesus. Okay. I mean, Rocky. And uh, so like, it's all of us chasing after Jesus. But I want to point out to you who you are. You are this girl in the green jacket. She didn't show up first. There were a lot of people who were there before her. And even amongst people who claimed to be followers of Rocky, she wasn't the coolest. She never made it into the Oscar ceremony. And that's us. Like, our role is the little girl in the green jacket. Our role is, I want to celebrate you, Jesus. I want to cheer you on, Jesus. I'm here for your fame. And I think the thing that we'll find out in our lives is that we are more at peace, more joyful, more centered, more emotionally healthy, more concerned about justice and racial reconciliation and any of these causes that make the world a greater place. Our marriages are strengthened. All of these things that we have hopes for and dreams for in our lives will be more realized in your life when you exalt and glorify God. It's like the great paradox of the Christian life. The more you live for him, the more good and, and um, kind of love that you have that floods into your own life to the extent that we see him as a God of the gospel, a savior and a king who lived and in his life died for our sins. And that event is not about life advice, but about the good news of what he has done and who he is. And to the extent that we live for his glory, we'll find life change. You can take that down. But just remember, that's you. If you're here this morning and you feel like it's a chance for a new start, or even you've been a Christian for a long time, and you're saying, I feel like I've had a hundred new starts, and I'm discouraged in my faith. Still, the good news of the gospel revealed in baptism applies to you. Like, even if you've been a Christian and you've been baptized, the reality that you raise and resurrect like Jesus did to a new life is still true. 
and it's a truth that we have to apply to our lives. And so Christians, discouraged Christians, I want to encourage you. You are still loved by Jesus, just like the day you became a Christian. And you still need to die to your old life, just like you did when you became a Christian. And your future and your life is a resurrected life with a new identity every day that we live uh, in following Jesus. Let's pray.